Well, we've been studying uh, the book of Exodus together, and uh, this morning kind of marks a place where we're going to kind of wrap things up for now in our study of Exodus. But let me just uh, bring you through where we've been so far as we've looked at the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Uh, If you don't know much about the Bible, let me try to help you understand a little bit of this story. So uh, 400 years prior to this, uh, God had made a promise, actually even longer ago than that, to a guy named Abraham, that he would make Abraham into a great nation. And uh, Abraham was uh, in his 70s at the time, ends up getting into to be about 100 years old before he has any kids. And then God, uh, in his great mercy, uh, gives him a son, uh, Isaac, who has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob has uh, 12 sons. And uh, one of these is a guy named Joseph, and his brothers hated him. And they actually sold him. If you think your family has dysfunction, just go look at, at Joseph. And, or Jacob's family, excuse me, and the example of Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery and uh, taken to Egypt. And then uh, his brothers tell his dad that he's dead. And uh, he spends uh, the rest of his life in Egypt. But God had a plan. What they had meant for evil, God meant for good. And so uh, Joseph, by God's great providence, he, he suffers while he's in Egypt but thankfully, he doesn't find his identity in his suffering or, or mope about it or, or get stuck in it. He, he continues to trust the Lord through it. And then God uses him and raises him to a position of authority in Egypt that's second only to King Pharaoh. And uh, Joseph, God bestows with great wisdom. And there's going to be a plague uh, or a famine, excuse me, God reveals to him. And first there's going to be seven years of, of bounty and then seven years of, of famine and hardship. And Joseph in his wisdom knows because of God's providence to him uh, that we need to save up for these seven years so that in those seven years of famine, uh, we have food and can make it through. And then during those seven years, all the nations of the earth start coming to Egypt, realizing they're the only place with food because of the famine. God provided through Joseph's suffering, and then through all that Joseph went through and his faithfulness, God used him. And eventually, Joseph's brothers actually come to Egypt as well. And to make a long story short, uh, they end up uh, settling in Egypt, and they multiply there into a great nation, fulfilling God's promise a few generations prior to Abraham. And they're in Egypt, we're told, for 400 years, 430 to be exact. And after that time, uh, the Pharaoh who knew Joseph and trusted him was long gone and more Pharaohs had arisen and died. And now the Pharaoh who's in charge really didn't know or care who Joseph was. And he was threatened by the great abundance of God's people. And so he inflicted them into slavery and made them slaves. And so they're slaves now uh, under the hand of Pharaoh. They cry out to God for help and God raises up an unlikely hero Uh, in this guy named Moses. And Moses gets rescued. Uh, His life is spared in an early age. And then he grows up uh, in Pharaoh's courts, not unlike uh, his great, 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 great granddad, Joseph, or not his, yeah, well, it'd be related there to Joseph did uncle. Probably he grows up in Pharaoh's house and uh, he's there uh, for until he's about 40. And then, uh, he ends up murdering a guy and he runs into the wilderness to flee from Pharaoh. 
while he's in the wilderness, he meets his wife. And uh, he spends 40 years in the wilderness until at age 80, God appears to him. Jesus appears to him in a burning bush at Mount Sinai and says, Moses, I've heard the cries of my people and I'm going to rescue them. And you're the guy who's going to do it. And so Moses gets sent back by God to rescue his people. And in and, and God's miraculous hand being upon him, he sends 10 plagues that show his power over every other quote unquote God of the Egyptians. And he redeems and he rescues his people in, in a pretty profound way. And on their way out of the land, uh, it says that the Egyptians actually chased them out. And on their way out, though, they get to the Red Sea. And now Pharaoh changed his mind again and he's coming after them. So God miraculously parts the Red Sea for them. And they walk across dry land across the Red Sea. And then they get across and they turn around. Pharaoh's army is still coming and God closes the water over them and rescues them for good. And now here they are. They've never had to fight. God has done all the fighting for them. They've never had to raise a weapon in their defense. God has been their defender over and over and over. But now that they're free, now that they've been rescued and uh, drawn on their way to the land that God had also promised to Abraham, uh, now they start to face some hardship again. And God provides for them. He provides water for them. He provides food for them. But then at some point even we saw that they had to fight. Not to win their freedom, but uh, to really live out who God had made them to be. And they had to live out this identity. And then God gives them instruction of how they're supposed to live now as his children once they get into the land to the place that they're going. He says in chapter 19, uh, I am your God, you will be my children, and I will dwell among you. That's covenant language, and he makes a covenant with them. And we saw last week the Ten Commandments are simply God's uh, way of saying, to keep this covenant, here's how you should live. You are now these people. Live like this. Well, after the Ten Commandments... um, We, we talked about this. The Ten Commandments, really, when God says don't, what he's really saying is don't hurt yourself. A lot of people will view God's laws and his rules as uh, just kind of having his thumb on things. And he doesn't want you to have any fun. And, but really, when God is saying don't in these things and do some of these other things, what he's saying is live life to the fullest. Don't hurt yourself. All of his commands, in fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6 Look at this. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God. Why does it say? For what? For our good always. God's commands are always for our good. And so uh, after God speaks the Ten Commandments in the hearing of everyone, Moses ascends back to the the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God. And over the next 40 days, he lays out all of his commands for how his kids are supposed to live once they get into the promised land. It totals 613. These are just the first 10 in Exodus 20. And of these, again, they're all for their good. Additionally, God ends up giving commands for how they're to worship and how they're, uh, I mean, this holy God is coming to live among them. So how do they interact with him? And that's what the book of Leviticus ends up being all about. But God gives commands and and even how to design and lay out the tabernacle. And here's the deal. Exodus 19 and 20, I said this already, but following and following, God's making a covenant with his people. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll dwell among you. Now, here's how you should go live in light of that. 
Well, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to skip over uh, chapters 21 through 31, where God gives, lays out all the rest of these commands, because ultimately, uh, we could take a lot of time and go through them, but ultimately, to summarize them, when God says don't, he says don't hurt yourself. And when he says to do this, it's for your good always, as we read in Deuteronomy 6, chapter verse 24. But we're going to skip ahead to Exodus 32 today. Because in Exodus 32, this is about 40 days, a little more than 40 days after the Ten Commandments were given. In Exodus 32, the Israelites grow impatient waiting for Moses to come back down. He had been meeting with God on Mount Sinai. And they decide to build and worship a golden calf. So... While God's giving Moses uh, the commands up on top of the mountain for their good, meeting with him face to face, his very presence, uh, everyone else abandons God. God tells Moses he'll destroy Israel and I'm going to make a new people out of you, Moses, and your descendants. But we'll see Moses, uh, quote unquote, talk him out of it and remind him of his promise to Abraham. This is an ominous and pretty ironic event in a lot of ways. Uh, Even as God is instituting one of the greatest blessings ever, his presence, the Israelites are turning to worship an idol. This foreshadows so much ahead where over and over God offers his presence, but his people, including us, turn away to idols. So with all of that in mind, just kind of an overview of the story, even where we're going, uh, let me pray. And then we're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 32. Sound good? All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thanks for Jesus, Lord. Um, Pray this morning that as I teach your word, uh, you would teach me and speak to me even as I speak. Holy Spirit, would you use me today? I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would take your word and twist it and... um, Cause us either to ignore or not pay attention or understand wrongly your truth. Instead, would you show truth to us? Help us learn from the example of of the Israelites and of Moses. Uh, Lord, uh, Paul wrote that all of this happened and was recorded for our instruction. So I pray it might, uh, might change us today. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Help us this morning, I pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Exodus 32. And uh, one of the things I just want to point out here is we get started. We're going to see Aaron listening to the crowd. Aaron is Moses' brother. And he was kind of uh, his second in command, his partner in crime, so to speak. And uh, while Moses is up on the mountain, Aaron is left in charge of all the people. And what we're going to see here is Aaron listening to the crowd. And it's a good reminder for us that we have a choice day in and day out. We can... If we want to, listen to the crowd. We're going to see a a difference to that as well. But just keep that in mind here as we get started in Exodus chapter 32. In verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And they said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we we don't know what's become of him. It says when the people saw Moses delayed. The people here, this is like uh, upwards anywhere from 600,000 to 2 million people, depending on uh, which commentator you want to follow and how you're going to count the number of people. 
It's a ton of people coming to Aaron. And when they come to him, they're coming because Moses had delayed. Now, it, this, this verb here, it's not Moses was delayed. It's that he delayed. He took his time. It reminds me a little bit of, of Jesus later when he would spend time in God's presence. You know, uh, whenever uh, the disciples couldn't find Jesus, do you know where he was? He was praying. He was with his father. Whenever they couldn't find him, that's what he was doing. He was delaying. And at one point they're like, Jesus, where are you? All the people are looking for you. He's like, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. I got other things to do. Let's go to the next city. He, he, Moses here delayed. He was spending probably the best days of his life in God's very presence on the top of this mountain. And Moses was gone. Uh, we would read, if, if we were to go through all those uh, chapters 21 through 31, we'd read in Exodus 24, verse 18, that Moses was gone for 40 days and 40 nights. That's how long he was on the mountain. And when you consider what Mount Sinai likely looked like, I think I'd shown you a picture of a volcano in Mexico to give you just a visual, potentially, of what it looked like. It probably was much more fearsome than that. But if you're God's people, if you're part of the Israelites and you're down at the foot of the mountain and your leader has gone up on top of the mountain and it's been uh, over a month now, what do you think happened? He gone. Right? I mean, God's instructions were don't even come, don't like, don't even touch the mountain. What's Moses doing going up there? Look at that. There's no way he's still alive. I got an idea. We need a God. Let's go to Aaron. He's in charge now. We're going to go talk to him. And they go after Aaron. You know, I just, I I wonder, um, in our day and age, we've been waiting for Jesus to return a long time, haven't we? Now, a lot of times, sadly, in our culture, some people and some Christians and some churches have said, well, it's been so long and everything he taught, well, it's just so outdated. And maybe we need to update that and change that and modify that to kind of fit our time, right? I mean, I don't know. He's, he's not coming back for a while. If he had come back by now, he probably would have said this in a different way. Surely the Bible, when it says don't do that, it can't mean that really, right? Well, basically you condense that down to 40 days and that's what the Israelites are doing here. They're ignoring the sure word of God. I mean, they had heard God's voice with the 10 commandments. And in Exodus 19, they had actually, when Moses said, here's what God said you're supposed to do. And they're like, Hey, whatever he says we'll do, we'll do it. You can read it. It's their own words in Exodus 19. And yet here they are just over 40 days later. And eh, forget that we need something a little different. God's word is unchanging and it's always for our good. That's why we preach the Bible. Amen. That's a good spot for an amen. That's why we preach the Bible. Amen? amen. And if I quit preaching the Bible or whoever's up here quits preaching the Bible, what do we do? We rush the stage and then we fire them. We gently, gently carry them off in case it's me, but then we fire them. Why? Because we love them and because we love God and we love his word. Amen. Now it says the people here gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now, literally, it says, um, if you could see this in the Hebrew, it would say that the people assembled on Aaron. They assembled over Aaron. Um, 
the word for the preposition can have either a positive or a negative meaning. So oftentimes it's just kind of translated neutrally. You know, the people just, they gathered themselves there. But I I, I get this sense as I've studied it this week that really the people uh, gathered themselves up over against Aaron. Like they're getting in his face about this. Like, hey, Aaron, I don't know who you think you are, but look at all of us. We're in charge now. Now here's what's going to happen. And look what they say. They say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. In other words, Aaron, why don't you do something, you lazy bum? You've been just hanging out for 40 days while Moses is gone. Why don't you do something? This is, it, it really is, uh, the way it's written, uh, it's, it's very disrespectful. It's very derogatory towards Aaron. They're like, get up, do something as they come after him. And then look at their words about Moses. Incredibly disrespectful. As for this Moses, you know, who is he? What do you mean this Moses? The dude led you out of Egypt. You were slaves for 400 years and he's led you out of Egypt. You saw God do things that other people in history have never seen before and won't see again until Jesus returns. And yet you're like, oh, who's this Moses guy? Like what happened to him? Come on. How do you shift like that far? Over the course of 40 days, to go from following him and following the Lord to now just totally bashing their leader. It's very disrespectful. And a couple of things I would note here before we read these next four or five verses. Have you noticed that our culture can be very similar to this? I would say, and others have said, we're kind of living in the age of outrage. You ever heard that? We're really living in an age of outrage. And what does that mean for us then as Christians? Well, everyone seems to just flip out about something. And social media has totally perpetuated it, hasn't it? Because you can get on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever, and you can either be yourself or you can be totally anonymous. And and you can just spout off something that you would never say to somebody face to face. And we get all riled up about something, whether, and, and I'm guilty of it too, whether it's the telephone company and all their, you know, no sir, fill in the blank, or it's something really of, of, of great importance culturally or morally. And, and we get, we just get all, we just get so angry. I'm so mad. And then, uh, the news cycle changes in 24 hours. It's like, okay, so what are we mad about today? Let me get on Twitter and find out. Isn't it true though? Like we live in this age of outrage. So what does that look like for us as Christians? Because it's not just in our culture. It's, it happens in the church world. And I think Aaron here in Exodus 32 is dealing with a mob that's outraged. They come up over and against him. They're like, Moses, get up, do something. You see it in athletics. More and more you see stories of parents who, uh, the fights aren't between kids in the Little League game, it's between dads. Come on. Uh, You see it on social issues, you see it in politics. Sadly, it seems like the majority of leaders today do more to divide and inflame people than they do to unite and bring peace and lead. And it's not just one side of the aisle. But friends, so what does that mean for us as Christians? 
living in an age of outrage. Well, here's what I would say, and I wouldn't say it actually. Peter says it. So God says it in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him, here it is right here, right? Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let's, let's have our example be one, a witness of those who love and seek peace and pursue it. Amen? First Thessalonians, Paul write, he tell, writes and tells them to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, work with your hands like we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, this whole age of outreach, none of it should really surprise us. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he says, Understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I would imagine if any of you are, uh, hop on Facebook later, or if you're on Facebook right now, you can probably find posts that line up with every, and I know some of you are, it's okay. Uh, You're going to find some posts that line up with these descriptions, aren't you? That Jesus is coming soon, friends. I wonder if when Paul was writing that today, you know, he says, avoid such people, how he would uh, tell that to us. Avoid them. Don't be like them. Be different. Don't buy into the outrage culture. Create a culture of peace. Love people that people would know you're my disciples, Jesus says, because of your love for one another. Another thing, uh, before we read the rest of this, uh, just we're here in verse 1. Uh, you know, the, the people really come up against Aaron and they, they totally uh, are disrespectful toward Moses as well. And uh, hand in hand with this is this idea of honoring authority. You know, friends, we're to honor, love, care for, and respect those who's got, who, who are our leaders, who God has put in charge it stands out to me how disrespectful and rebellious the people are toward the leaders that God graciously gave them in Moses and Aaron. Just totally disrespectful to them. Romans 13, Paul uh, actually, Paul talks about uh, respecting authority and he, he actually makes some connections back to this group of people. Romans 13, I'll read the first couple verses or be on the screen and then I'll read some more of it. But he says this, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there's no, no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. He goes on, he says, uh, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. So why don't you fear those who are in authority? Why don't you respect them? Do what's good. You'll receive approval. And he goes on and on. And he says, oh, oh, in verse 80, he ends up saying, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. And then he ties it right back to these people here in Exodus. He says, for the commandments... You know, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. covet. And any other commandment, they're summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
part of loving your neighbor is respecting and submitting to the authority God's put in our life, whether that's in the world, in the church, wherever that is, right? Now, not just governing authorities, but spiritual ones. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says to obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. See, at the, the core of of that whole outrage culture. And I think even at the core of, of, of the, the people's agenda here in Exodus chapter 32 is, is just a selfish, self-centered, prideful, it's all about me mentality. And there's nothing new under the sun because we're just like them, aren't we? And yet we're to love others though. It's to be about other people, respecting them, deferring to them. Obey your leaders, the writer of Hebrews says, submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So let them do this with joy, not with groaning for that'd be of no advantage to you. That would have been a good word for the Israelites, wouldn't it? Let Aaron serve you with joy. Let Moses serve you with joy. Because if you don't, if you just grumble and complain, it's of no advantage ultimately to you. So how do you do this? Practically, you know, how do we learn from their example? Well, one way you can serve with joy um, is, is actually serve and not just consume. Get involved. You know, most of the criticism in my experience in ministry that kind of comes, uh, our way and, uh, that even I'm guessing this would have been similar in that day because, we're just as messed up as the Israelites are that maybe came towards Aaron. But usually the people who complain the most are the people who do the least. The loudest voices have the quietest hands. They're not serving, just complaining. So don't just consume, give, contribute. Another way uh, is once you do contribute and serve, uh, make it easy and on your leaders, not just pastors here I'm not talking about, but those who lead in general in the church. If you sign up for something, show up. Like do it. Like be there on time. Serve. Make it a joy for them. And all those who lead anything said, yeah. amen. Now, listen, friends, I'm not, I'm not trying to beat you up at all. But I am trying to admonish you to say, hey, Paul tells us, he tells the Corinthians and then us that all of these things happened and were recorded. All the things in Exodus were recorded for our instruction. So how do we draw out of that how we're supposed to live today, right? We're all guilty of these things, including the guy saying it. We all are. So let's learn from this and do our best to love the Lord. See, because if we listen to the crowd, let's see what happens. Exodus 32, I'll start again in verse 1. We'll read the first six verses. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And they said to him, get up, make us gods who who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, "Uh, okay, well, now listen, Aaron's listening to the crowd. We have a choice, don't we? Listening uh, for us, it's listening to our culture. Uh, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Do you ever read this and wonder, okay, where did a bunch of former slaves get gold earrings? Ever ever have that question? Well, the the answer is, if you do, uh, is that when uh, 
God rescued his people out of Egypt. Uh, they were told, they said, go to the Egyptians and ask for their gold, ask for things. And the Egyptians just started saying, just, you know what? Take anything you want. It's all yours. Just get out of our country so the plagues end. And they totally plundered the Egyptians. And so there's this uh, huge group of people wandering around that's incredibly wealthy in the wilderness with gold earrings. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. Graving tool, uh, some translations might say he cast a mold. That's the idea. He used an engraving tool to kind of carve out a mold, I think. And then he, he casts an image of this golden calf. And after the people saw it, look what they said. They said, uh, hey, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And that's a good time if you were there to do what? Boo! No! Absolutely not! These are not that's, that golden cow didn't bring us up out of Egypt. Come on! How do they get so delusioned to go from, yeah, we'll obey the Lord to, to this? And Aaron seems to just bow to the outrage culture of his day who demanded a God of gold. And when Aaron saw this, though, now in verse 5, some commentators think maybe Aaron's trying to backtrack a little bit here. Because it says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now in your translation, uh, how is Lord written? What kinds of letters? All capitals. So what that means is whenever you see all capital letters in the Old Testament, that's a way of uh, most translations saying that this is God's personal name, Yahweh, in use here. So Aaron isn't just saying, let's build, a, you know, let's build an altar to this God. He's saying, no, let's build an altar to Yahweh and worship him. And so some think that, and I, I think it's a good possibility, maybe Aaron is trying to backtrack here and go, Guys, we, we got to worship the Lord. The problem is he does it too late, if that's the case. Because the golden idol's already been cast. The people are already worshiping. And the next day, they rose up early. They offered burnt offerings, and they brought peace offerings. But they weren't worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping the God of their own creation. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. Um... That's a nice way of saying uh, they got drunk. And uh, literally the language here in Hebrew is used many other times for all kinds of sexual sin. And it's very much dumbed down here to just be they drank and rose up to play. This group turned on their leaders and they ultimately turned on God. And, and Aaron, it's so sad uh, I don't know if he was insecure, if he just felt threatened, but, but he listened to the crowd rather than listening to the Lord. Moses, on the other hand, is up on top of the mountain still. And uh, what we're going to find out is that when Moses sees all this, the psalmist writes in Psalm 106 that, uh, you know, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. 
Even Moses, after being betrayed by this people, we see a strong, selfless leader who we also see one with some anger issues. He's still a human being and pretty messed up, we're going to see. But incredibly, he continues to pray for these people. What a great heart that he had. What a great example he gives us. So how did Moses do this? How did he turn his heart to actually pray for them? Well, unlike Aaron, who listened to the crowd, Moses was listening to God. See, we got a choice. We can, we can listen to the crowd. We can listen to our culture, whether that's an outrage culture or whatever that is. And we can let our hearts be drawn toward idolatry or we can listen to God and spend time with him. It's a moment by moment choice. Now, Moses was spending time listening to God. He had been with him for 40 days now up on the mountain, delaying his return. The psalmist says that better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'm telling you, these, were, these had to be the best 40 days of Moses' life. Uninterrupted time with the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, while he's up there, uh, Mo, you need to go down. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf. They've worshipped it, sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now remember, Moses, he was a great leader, but he was also just a man. Put yourself in his spot. What must be going through his mind right now? We had seen God do so many... What? Do you, what? They've, they've turned? It's only been like a month. They've already turned? They, they built a, an idol? Really? And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked here just means stubborn. And by the way, that could be used to describe any one of us. Stiff-necked meaning, uh, see, uh, let, me just, let me jump ahead here a little bit. Martin Luther uh, nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church 500 years ago. And the first one he wrote was this. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Do you know what repentance means? Repent is kind of a, a word that maybe we often hear mostly in church and kind of a churchy word, maybe seems old, but repent at its core simply means a change of mind or to turn. And if, so what God's saying here about his people, they're stiff necked. They refuse to turn to me. They refuse to repent. They're not living a life of continual repentance. They're just Nope, this is what I'm going to do. I'm fixed on this idol and I'm not changing and I don't care even what God says. He says, they're a stiff-necked people, Moses. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God's like, Moses, we're starting over again. I'm going to kill them all. We're going to start over with you. But look at Moses does. And I think this comes directly out of... Now, uh, Moses ends up, we see, being angry when he gets down there too, right? So it's not like Moses wasn't angry about this too. 
But after spending time with God and being in his presence, his heart had developed a heart of compassion. Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt? You brought them out, not me. Moses deflects all the glory to the Lord with great power and a mighty hand. I mean, why should the Egyptians say now with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Lord, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and say to them, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I've promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And it says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You know, it's a reminder that when you spend time with the Lord, it's good to pray his own promises back to him. To recall, not because God's forgotten, like you've got to remind him of what he said, right? Actually, it's you being reminded yourself of what God has said. Pray his word back to him. That's what Moses does here. It's like, God, don't you remember all the promises you made? I, I remember that. Keep that. And Moses doesn't take credit that he brought him out, even though God said he brought him out. He said, no, God, you're the one who brought him out. This is all about you. It's not about me. I, I really wonder if some of these initial uh, verses where God is expressing his anger and wrath, it's true anger for sure. But if part of that isn't a test to see, Moses, where is your heart? Where's your heart? Will you love peace and pursue it? Or what will you do? We could say a lot more about this, but let's keep going. So you can listen to the crowd or you can listen to God. And here's the deal. One of those voices leads to death. But God's word is life. One of those voices leads to death, but God's word is life. Then Moses turned, he went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 1 that all of God's word is not uh, from humanity, from human hands. But it's from God himself. He wrote it. And it's for our instruction. Not human initiative. Same with the Ten Commandments. When, when Joshua heard the noise, he was with Moses as they shouted. He said to Moses, Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of a cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. So Moses comes down in the midst of their uh, drunken celebration. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. This isn't the first time we see Moses angry. Won't be the last time we see Moses angry. Mo, see, that's, that's one thing I love about God's word. Is that it doesn't make anybody but Jesus out to be a hero. It presents people for who they really are. If you were making up a religion, and Moses is the guy who writes this. If you were making all this up, why would you cast the, the quote unquote heroes of your faith as being as messed up as a guy like Moses was? Well, because it's to exalt how great Jesus truly is. And it's true. As soon as he came near the camp, saw the calf, his anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
He took the calf that they had made. He burned it with fire. He ground it to powder and scattered it on the water. And then he made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought such great sin upon them? Now, verse 20 here briefly and wrap up here quickly. He took the calf he made, he, they had made, he burned it with fire, he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. So Moses, I think this is, in many ways, God saying through Moses' actions, here's what I think of your idols. How are they going to get that gold back if they really treasured that gold idol? It's been ground up, they drank it. When's the next time they're going to see that gold? This is what I think of your idols. It's a shiny turd. (laughs) Isn't it true though? Everything that we would place above God when we listen to the crowd, when we don't listen to God and we place that above him and we make that into the primary thing in our life. Not always even a bad thing. It can be a really good thing like gold, which is a good thing. God made it. But when we make that primary, it becomes an idol and it leads to death. But God's word says, no, listen, turn to me. Turn always to me. Turn again to me. My arms are open wide. Run to me. I will give you life. See your idol for what it is. Repent. Don't be stiff-necked like this people. And as we go on, uh, we see God uh, carry out his wrath against those who did sin and create this idol. And uh, even bring a plague upon the people because of the calf that they had made. Because if they would choose to obey, God promised to bless. But when they chose to sin... He promised they were choosing to suffer. Friends, um, we could say a lot more about this passage and about the book of Exodus as a whole, but let me just close with this. Exodus really gives us a picture of what it's like to be redeemed by Jesus. Jesus does all the fighting for us in the beginning. He's the one who actually rescues us and frees us. Just like uh, his brother Jude said, Jesus was the one who led a people out of Egypt. God did all the fighting to rescue them and make him his own. God, Jesus does all the fighting for you to make you his own. All you have to do is believe. But then after becoming one of his children, there's now a new way to live in light of your new identity. And when you live that out, life goes so well. It goes so well. But the only way to live that out is Not to listen to every other voice, but to listen to the voice of the Lord, to be in his word, to be connected with other believers, to uh, continually repent and turn back to Jesus, not be stiff-necked like the people of Israel. And when we see our idols, to tear them down before God tears them down for us and gives us a vivid illustration of how wrong we've been. Amen? Let me pray. We're going to sing. And then we're going to call it a morning. Uh, Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us. Lord, um, thanks for the example you show us in Exodus. 
just a vivid picture, Jesus, of how you save us and then how you call us to live after that. You give us an identity and then you call us to obedience. So for those of us, Jesus, who've never trusted you, I I pray today might be even the day uh, that they would trust you. If that's you, it's very simple. The Bible says you don't have to clean your life up before you come to Jesus, but Jesus is the one actually who cleans you. He's the one who makes you white as snow. And your only responsibility is to believe his word and to trust him, to repent, to turn to him. And then, Lord, I pray for those of us who have trusted you. Help us to continually guard our heart against idolatry. Our hearts uh, in our sinful state are just little idol factories. We're always uh, continually putting uh, others and things and agendas above you. Help us to recognize those and continually tear them down. Not be stiff-necked, but be people of repentance. People of peace and of love and of joy. That we wouldn't listen to the crowd or listen even sometimes to the voice within us. But Jesus, that we would listen to your voice. Because your word is life. And as Peter said, Lord, who else would we go to but you? You have the words of eternal life. Help us trust you and obey. We pray all this, Jesus, in your strong name. Amen.